The Da Da Dee Da Da Coat by Robert Rankin Chapter 19 No, said Mr. Giggles. No, no, no. Yes, said Johnny Hooker. It's a deal. No, Johnny, listen, please. Mr. Giggles was once more agitated, once more animated. This joker is 100% fruitcake, a fruit loop, a fruit and nut, a nutty fruit nut loopy cake, a a loop nut fruit cake cakey nut fruity fruit jog, whispered Johnny without moving his lips, and the rest. Get out while you can. Make a run for it now. Pack your bag then, said Johnny to Hari, and we're out of here. Charlie looked at Johnny. Very hard. Are you sure about this? he asked. I mean, well, I mean... Johnny Hooker did some shrugging. It's fair, he said. I agreed to do him a favor, and he told a good tale. I don't know if it's pertinent or not, but it was a good tale. I don't think he should be banged up in here, so I'm setting him free. Top man, said Harry. But you can't just bust him out, just like that. Charlie put conviction into his voice. These things take planning, lots of planning. You can't just spring someone from incarceration on the spur of the moment. Of course I can, said Johnny. It's a piece of cake. A piece of Fruity Loop Nutty Nut Cake. No, said Charlie. It's not. It's really not. Listen to this man, said Mr. Giggles. He's a bit of a geek, but he knows what he's talking about on this occasion. Please leave it to me, said Johnny. But you haven't any weapons, said Charlie. Johnny shrugged some more. Do you still have that printout of the Jedi mind control techniques? He asked Hari. No, said Hari, who was packing his toothbrush. I wiped my bum on them and threw them at the constable. He gave me quite a hiding, I can tell you, but I deserved it, so that was okay. Run, said Mr. Giggles. Run now and fast. Right, said Johnny. So this is the plan. The constable, who was skilled in the Vulcan death grip, amongst so many other things, released the bolt and let Johnny and Charlie return to the corridor. Enjoy the visit to your brother? he asked to Charlie. Not much, said Charlie. And it was jolly and sporting of you to sell him sheets of nonsense about Jedi mind control. He was very happy with them. And you're so happy that he's happy, said the constable. And he waved his hands a bit, enigmatically. He is very happy with them. And I am so happy that he's happy, said Charlie. The constable winked at Johnny. No way, said Johnny. But the constable grinned. Well, said Johnny. Most impressive. What? said Charlie. What? Nothing, said Johnny, and he winked at the constable. Did I ask you whether you'd cut yourself shaving? asked the constable. No, said Johnny. I don't think you did. Charlie's brother's having a little meditate now, but he'd like you to awaken him, possibly with a tap to the skull with your truncheon, in ten minutes. Would that be all right? I'll do my best, said the constable. We policemen are the servants of the public, after all. It is our duty to do our best for the community at large and the public as a whole. Johnny paused, but the constable didn't crack a smile. But the setting sun went behind a cloud, and that dog howled again in the distance. Most impressive once more, said Johnny, and he bade the constable farewell. And he and Charlie plodded away up the corridor. Could we elevate this plod to a bit of a march, or at least a stalk? asked Charlie. I'd like to be out of this horrible place as quickly as possible. Ever anxious to oblige, said Johnny, gathering speed. They left the cottage hospital passed beneath the do-not-cross tape and nudged their way back through the crowd, stopping only to exchange pleasantries with the lady in the straw hat, who might or might not have been Joan's mom. 
they set off over the Great West Road and via somewhat a crooked route they made for the middleman. The middleman wasn't doing much when it came to the way of business, but O'Fagan, who stood as ever behind the bar counter, although upon this night with a banged head and an eye patch, was grateful that the pub was open for business at all, considering the pounding it had taken shortly after Johnny had left it earlier that day. Bopped me on the head, he did, said O'Fagan to Charlie, pointing to his wounded head as he did so. Robbed the till, Johnny raised his eyebrows to this, and had it away on his toes, by some route still unknown. But while I'm out for the count, the police outside start bawling through a loud hailer. Give yourself up, Johnny Hooker, or we come in all guns blazing. But of course he's gone, and I'm out like a dead dog's eye at a Balinese barbecue. Johnny raised his eyebrows once again. So the next thing is they're having at this pub with weapons of mass destruction, and the Lord Gary Glitter knows what else. I had to shore up the bog wall with some railway ties I was saving to make a feature of in my back garden. I've had to cancel quiz night, which didn't please Ranger Connor. He went off in a right huff. O'Fagan presented Charlie and Johnny with the pints of King Billy that Charlie had ordered. But that's enough about me for now, he continued. You'll probably be reading about it in the papers tomorrow. Local publican's heroism. I did some interviews with the press. Sold them the real story. Sold them? Mouthed Johnny and up went his eyebrows again. And now, so I heard on the wireless set this afternoon, Johnny Hooker's dead. O'Fagan continued some more, so his mum will have to pay off the huge bar tab he ran up here. Johnny Hooker's teeth now ground together. What a life, eh? said O'Fagan. So, how has your day been, Ranger Hawtrey? And who is this with you? And has he cut himself shaving? Allergy, said Charlie. Although surely now, still an allergy, said Johnny. He's my brother, said Charlie. Really? said O'Fagan. Now as the loony one is banged up, this must be the castrato. Indeed it is, said Johnny in a very high voice, which almost set him to giggling. I've always wanted to meet a castrato, said O'Fagan. There's something I've always wanted to ask. The answer is, deep in the heart of Texas, said Johnny. Really? said O'Fagan. I thought it was somewhere over the rainbow. Easy mistake, said Johnny. Charlie whispered at Johnny's ear. Those ten minutes you told the constable who was guarding my brother's cell about are now up, he whispered, checking his wristwatch. What is going to happen now? Johnny put his hand to his ear. Hearken unto, he said, and in the not altogether too far distance, the alarm bell of the cottage hospital began to ring. Now there's a sound you don't hear every day, said O'Fagan, the escaped loony alarm. Although, come to think of it, it seems to have been going off with painful regularity recently. One more pint of King Billy, please, said Johnny to O'Fagan. But you haven't finished that one yet. It's not for me. O'Fagan diddled his fingers on the bar counter, as he had never really been one for shrugging. As you please, said he, and he did the business. Johnny paid up, and he and Charlie took themselves off to a darkened corner. The darkened corner. That notorious darkened corner and presently a policeman entered the bar, made his way to the table of Charlie and Johnny, sat down at it, took up the spare pint, and drained it to its very dregs. Very impressive, said Charlie. The simplest ones are always the best, said the policeman, in the voice of Charlie's brother, because it was Charlie's brother, the loony one, not the castrato. Cheers, Johnny, said Harry. Cheers to you, Johnny replied. Okay, said Charlie. Would you please just run this by me one more time? I'm not quite sure what just happened. Oldest trick in the book, 
said Hari. The old switcheroo. Or was it? You were there, in the cell. You saw it all. I looked away, said Charlie. Ah, so you did. Well, what happened was that Johnny bound me hand and foot with the shirts and socks and such like, and gagged me too. Then he left with you, telling the constable to wake me from my meditation in ten minutes. The constable entered the cell ten minutes after you'd gone, found me struggling in my bondage, pulled the gag from my mouth, and heard me then shout, Stop him! Stop him! It's my loony brother who's left the cell. I'm Charlie Hawtrey. Oldest trick in the book. But a classic, said Johnny. Absolute classic, said Hari. And to add weight, I made a real fuss. Shouted about my brother stealing my uniform and how my uniform meant everything to me. I put on such a good show that the sergeant in charge, who was chatting up that Joan, she fancies me, said Charlie. And me also, said Hari. That sergeant ordered the martial artist constable to strip to his undies and give me his uniform. Nice touch, said Johnny. I'm not so sure, said Charlie. After all, that constable did make Hari very happy by selling him that Jedi mind control stuff, and I am so happy that he's happy. Eh? said Hari. What did I just say? said Charlie. Nothing, said Johnny. Continue, Hari. Oh, well. Well, that's about it, said Hari. Oh, I did get the sergeant to make the constable in the underwear drive me here to the pub. The least he could do, considering, don't you think? I'll get them in, said Johnny as he took the wallet. If you go up to the bar and O'Fagan recognizes you, things could get a bit complicated. He'll never recognize me, said Hari. I'm wearing a police uniform. People never recognize even close friends when they're dressed up in a uniform. I certainly do, said Johnny, and he drained his pint to dregs, which were like unto the dregs of the glass that had been drained by Hari. You're round, Hari, said Johnny. This is nonsense, said Charlie. No one could ever really get away with all that. It's ludicrous. I thought you were enjoying it, said Johnny. I thought you said that it was all very exciting and you were loving every minute of it. Oh, yes, said Charlie. I did. So I should just ignore the fact that it's ludicrous, do you think? Johnny nodded. And Hari nodded. And, ah, said Hari, patting at the constable's uniform. The constable's wallet is still in his pocket. Drinks on me, I think. Johnny made a so-so face. Oh, stuff it, said Charlie. Let Hari go. What could possibly happen? Chapter 20 Hari returned from the bar in blissful company of beers. I just love that O'Fagan, he said. Although, not in a physical sense, for that would be abhorrent. But, for one such as myself, who is a student of human nature, I have to say that a more singularly, unspeakably dishonest individual never drew breath to my knowledge. If one discounts all the well-known criminals, of course. Quite so, said Johnny, taking up the new beer he had been issued with and going cheers with it. What is he up to now? Selling his life story to the Sunday tabloids, apparently. He is of the conviction that this very pub is an epicenter for paranormal phenomena. Upon what grounds does he base this particular conviction? Johnny asked. None whatsoever, I should imagine. The man is a scoundrel. And it takes one to know one. Na na ni na na went Mr. Giggles, closely it seemed, at Johnny's right ear. Johnny ignored the troublesome monkey boy, whilst wondering whether or not Mr. Giggles fell into the category of psychic phenomena. All too well, he supposed. So, said Hari, many thanks once again to you, Johnny, for arranging my escape. I'm wondering whether we might continue to do favors for one another upon a mutually beneficial basis. Johnny Hooker smiled through his elastoplasts. So, said Hari once more, 
Do you have any clear idea about exactly what this quest you seem to be on might be? Johnny Hooker scratched his head. Not as such, said he. I know that it is something to do with the letter I received, telling me that I was a competition winner. It would appear that in order to claim my prize, I must solve something that I whimsically named the Da-Da-Dee-Da-Da Code. Although the man who printed the competition letters is now dead, which, although it might have put the kibosh somewhat on winning the prize, does appear to have elevated the competition to a higher level. There is a secret, and some person, or persons, are prepared to murder in order to keep this secret. Is this da-da-dee-da-da as in music? Hari asked. I am assuming so. As fate takes me from one place to another, I find myself meeting people who tell me tales. Of Robert Johnson, of Morsky the Castrato, of an heirloom that weaves music into words. It all seems to be musically related. But as to where it's all leading, that's anyone's guess. Heirloom? said Hari. Who spoke to you of the heirloom? Charlie made the face of shame. It's a good story, said Johnny. I think it has more than a ring of truth to it, being set as it was years before such technology could possibly exist. I'm wondering whether this James Tilly Matthews character actually did see some kind of machine. It's possible. I was hoping you might be able to shed some light on the matter. Hari took to the sipping of ale. Did you by any chance ever meet a Mr. James Crawford? Johnny asked. Hari ceased supping. Why do you ask? Because there's an empty record sleeve on the shelves of his collection marked Apocalypse Blues by Robert Johnson. James Crawford allowed you access to his collection? Not as such, said Johnny. And he pulled out the small leather-bound notebook from his pocket, the one with the bloodstains on it. Oh dear, said Hari, leaning back on his bar stool. If you have his notebook, then... Oh, sorry, said Johnny. He's dead. Oh dear, poor James. I assume it was not a natural death. Someone cut off his head, said Johnny. Probably the same someone who cut off the head of Dr. Archie, and whoever was in the hospital today wearing my clothes and carrying my wallet. Oh dear, oh dear, said Hari. Things are far worse than I thought, although I'm glad about Dr. Archie. He was a stinker, him. James Crawford printed the letter that I received, said Johnny, on the Protein Man's printing press beneath Gunnersbury Park Museum. We went there through a secret passage, said Charlie. It was very exciting. I recognize the typeface on the letter. I have to take the credit for that. The credit, Hari smiled, and it was a smile that lacked somewhat for humor. Your discovery and your disclosure of it to Johnny here no doubt precipitated James Crawford's death. Oh, said Charlie. I don't think that can be the case. Have you read the contents of this book? Johnny asked Hari. Naturally. James and I spoke a great deal about the subject of the influencing machine. He had become convinced that he had been magnetized and that a nearby machine was being tuned to his vibratory signature. And do you believe this? Yes, I do, said Hari. But remember, I have been certified insane. Myself also, said Johnny. Several times, the latest being the day before yesterday. I suspect that you are quite as sane as me, said Hari. Right, said Johnny. So, let us say, for argument's sake, that some modern equivalent of Tilly's heirloom were to exist and James Crawford had been targeted by the operators, and he sought help by printing the competition letters, hoping that they might mean something to someone, someone who would help him. Then it seems logical that it would be a member of a present-day heirloom gang who murdered him. Does that make any sense? It does to me, said Hari. How about you? I wouldn't describe myself as warming to the idea, but there is a certain cold-blooded logic to this, assuming that such a machine were actually to exist. 
You've read all the contents of the notebook? asked Hari. I have, said Johnny. He speaks of control, that the gang seek to control all, and somehow it's done through music, music that is played on the keyboard of the machine and which somehow translates itself into oral messages beamed into the brain of the unlucky targetee. How would you know? Johnny asked. Know what? Hari asked. Know if you'd been targeted, if you had been magnetized. There lies the problem, said Hari. James Tilly Matthews gave exceedingly complex descriptions of the loom and the gang employed in its operation. It's all most detailed, but he couldn't prove any of it. He couldn't prove that he had been magnetized, or that members of the parliament were being targeted, although that was what he believed. He couldn't prove it, but he made a real nuisance of himself to the high muckamucks of his day about it, and so he was declared mad and spent twelve years in Bedlam. Talk of disembodied voices tends to lead the talker directly to the madhouse. Some things never change, said Johnny, but could there really be a present-day heirloom? And, for that matter, could it really be under the control of the deathless supervillain, Count Otto Black? What do you think? Do you have a computer? Hari asked. Check the web. Check the conspiracy theory sites. If the technology didn't exist in Matthews's time, it's odd on favorite that it does now. And if it exists, you can bet your bottom dollar that someone will be using it. To what end? You know to what end. Control. So, we're talking about the CIA or some undercover covert government operation, beaming voices into people's heads? I did have a constable who dropped me off here take me first to a nearby corner shop. Hari lifted his police cap. It was lined with tinfoil. But I thought you said that you had been given the gift for hearing voices through hearing the recording of the angel singing. There are voices, and then there are voices, said Hari. Nothing is simple. Nothing straightforward. One could easily go mad thinking about this stuff. Johnny nodded. One certainly could. I was wondering, said Charlie, whether, Johnny, you might put us up for the night at your house. I don't think it would be safe for us to go to ours. It's the first place the police will stake out in search of Hari. Oh, my sweet lord, said Johnny, sputtering somewhat into his beer. My place. My mum. She must think that I'm dead, that I was murdered. Then won't she be pleased when she learns that you're not? Johnny Hooker shook his head. I somehow doubt that, he said. I'm sure that she's heard all the news, and I'm sure she's made up her mind that I'm a homicidal maniac. And when it turns out that I'm still alive, I will still be the number one suspect for the murders, including the one of my bogus self, which the police will probably reason that I did in order to fake my own death. Difficult times for you, said Charlie. So it's not back to your place then? No, said Johnny. It's not. But do you intend to continue this quest of yours? asked Hari. It does appear to be coalescing into a quest to seek the murderer and clear your own name, and to uncover the existence of the heirloom gang. Yes, said Johnny. It rather does look like that, doesn't it? So where are we staying tonight? Charlie asked, because I must get a good night's sleep or I will be all grumpy in the morning. Johnny did raisings of his eyebrows. Hari just shook his head. We could sneak into Gunnersbury Park, was Johnny's suggestion. Hole up in the ranger's hut for the night? Good thinking, said Charlie. Are you up for that, Hari? Hari nodded. And first thing in the morning, I'm on my way. To where? Charlie asked. To anywhere, said Hari. I'm an escaped lunatic. And in the current climate, I'll probably find myself being shot on sight by some constable with a photon torpedo launcher or something. I was hoping you might help me, said Johnny. Given your record so far, how long do you think my head would remain upon my shoulders? Perhaps I should come with you, Hari, said Charlie. Keep you company. 
Where do you think? Tierra del Fuego? So I have to do this on my own? Johnny took a sup from his pint. Think of yourself as the hero, said Hari. A loner, an outcast, but a seeker after truth who will ultimately succeed and make good. And is that how you see me? I was suggesting that it was how you should see yourself. Johnny Hooker shrugged and nodded. A not-too-winning combination. All right, said he. I'll go it alone. You're brave, said Hari. I'm sure you'll succeed. You are? I do wish you wouldn't keep asking me these leading questions. Hari fished into the upper right breast pocket of the uniform that he wore. I wonder if they still carry the regulation. Ah, yes, they do. And he pulled out a small pocket compass. This might be of some use to you, he said. And he handed it to Johnny. Johnny took the Metropolitan Police Issue Compass. In case I get lost, he said. No. In case you get... Hari paused. Shall we say that it would have probably helped James Tilly Matthews if he'd thought to carry one? Johnny placed the compass gently onto the table before him. He peered down at the glass. The needle was pointing firmly. It was pointing towards Johnny. But Johnny did not lie, or indeed sit, to the magnetic north of the compass. Quite to the contrary, in fact. Johnny's jaw went just a little slack. Does this mean, he began, it means, said Hari, that you'll probably be wanting to wear some tinfoil under your cap. Chapter 21 Johnny Hooker spent a most uncomfortable night in the hut. It wasn't a physical discomfort, for he slept upon a rather comfortable Regency-style chase lounge with cabriole legs and a gilded muff trumble. It was a serious mental discomfort, and Johnny was no stranger to this. All his life he had been haunted. Haunted and driven. Haunted and driven by Mr. Giggles. Imaginary friend? Audiovisual hallucination pumped into his head from an heirloom? What? Johnny now had tinfoil lining his cap, and Mr. Giggles was silent. Which meant... Johnny didn't know what this meant. That Mr. Giggles' voice had been smothered by a layer of tinfoil? Or that Mr. Giggles was simply away for a while? Or lying low? Or playing a prank? And magnetized? For Johnny was magnetized. He had discovered that he could lift pins from a tabletop without touching them. Which was surely proof, wasn't it? proof of the heirloom's existence. Johnny knew it was nothing of the kind. There might be myriad explanations. And if it were proof, then whom could he trust to confide this truth in? He could hardly turn up at a police station and declare himself alive and magnetized. He would once more be the wanted man, the escaped lunatic, the murderer suspect. And who would believe him anyway? He had no real proof. He wasn't even certain that he believed in the heirloom himself. He would just have to wait. Wait until Mr. Giggles raised his hairy head again. Wait until he had some hard evidence. Wait until he could prove his innocence. But then waiting, as such, was out of the question. He had to act, and act now. Well, perhaps not right now, but certainly first thing in the morning. Act before the forces of law caught up with him, or even the heirloom gang. If the tinfoil cut off their mental probings, they would surely know, wouldn't they? And if they suspected that he was onto them, they would kill him. Or would they? They hadn't killed him so far, and he seemed to have found out a lot. But then perhaps they hadn't killed him because they wanted him to take the rap for their murderings. That was more than possible. In fact, that made a great deal of sense. And so Johnny tossed and turned on the chase, ever careful not to dislodge his cap. A victim of his own thoughts. Here indeed lay madness. It woke him to a view of a clear blue sky through a window that was somewhat steamed up by the condensed breaths of three sleepers. But the other makeshift bunks were now empty, 
the brothers Hotchery had departed. They had, however, left fifty quid on the table for Johnny, which was kind at least. So, said Johnny, trousering the money, that's it, all on my own. Not entirely, said the voice of Mr. Giggles. It was still firmly stuck to his head. You didn't believe any of that guff, did you? Mr. Giggles giggled. Johnny clutched at his foil-lined cap. That Hari is dafter than a bucket of blowfish. All he wanted was for you to set him free, and now you can have that on your conscience, too. How so? Johnny asked. You can be so dim, said Mr. Giggles. Those two were in it all together. Surely you reasoned that out. What are you talking about? That Hari is a paranoid schizophrenic. Just like me, then? A lot worse than you. I'll bet it was him who did for Dr. Archie or his brother in some previous and foiled attempt to release Hari. That doesn't make any sense. They used you, Johnny. Then why tell me all that stuff? To reinforce your own beliefs. Tinfoil in your cap? Did you really believe that I was being beamed into your bonds by a gang with a magical machine? Hmm, went Johnny. I know what hmm means. I don't trust you, said Johnny, and I do not believe anything that you tell me. And yet I'm certain it was me who got you started on this quest of yours in the first place. Because it did seem like a bit of a laugh. At the time. Ah, said Johnny. But the things you told me tie up with the things they told me. Toot, said Mr. Giggles. Prepared breakfast. I love the smell of hash browns in the morning, said Mr. Giggles. But I'm not cooking hash browns. No, you're charcoaling sausages. You really should take much more care of your diet. And why should I do that? because you must look after yourself. And why? To stay healthy. I care about you, Johnny. As if you do. I do, really. You mean everything to me. Yeah, right. Oh, you do, Johnny, which is why you must trust me. I have your best interests at heart. I want what's best for you, because what is best for you is best for me. Johnny tipped the charcoaled sausages, along with a lot of grease, onto a famille rose dining plate, painted with red and gilt at the center, beneath a coat of arms surmounted with the Crawford family ducal crest. Sale room value, four to six hundred pounds. Lovely grub, said he. I have to look after you, said Mr. Giggles. If not because I care, then because I have to. Are you trying to tell me something? Johnny spoke through blackened teeth. Perhaps these sausages are a tad overdone. You're my last, said Mr. Giggles. When your time is done, then my time is done. Just what are you saying? Johnny now picked charcoal pickings from his teeth. When you die, I die, said Mr. Giggles. I'll never be an imaginary friend to any other after you. I'll just vanish away. You'll die like me? That's about the shape of it. Which is why it is in my interest to keep you fit and well and alive for as long as possible. Right, said Johnny slowly. I see. I doubt if you do, but it's true anyway. And so I'm sure you're going to tell me to abandon my quest and head off to Tierra del Fuego after the Hawtree brothers. Something of the sort, yes. Well, I'm not doing it. I do not intend to spend the rest of my life as either a fugitive or a prisoner. I intend to clear my name. And if there is some sinister underground organization beaming stuff into people's heads, I'll track them down and expose them. You'll get yourself killed. It's such a bad idea. Well, it's what I'm going to do. So you can either help me out or go on ahead to Tierra del Fuego and wait there in case I change my mind and decide to join you. I would favor you taking the latter option. What say you? I think I'll just tag along for now. What a surprise. 
I'm thinking of you. I really am. Then, said Johnny, I suggest you maintain a thoughtful silence until you have something really useful to say. Then I will be able to concentrate fully on the job in hand and avoid making some foolish mistake which might well result in me taking a zapping from the business end of some constable's mega-weapon. What say you to this? Mr. Giggles offered up a somewhat grudging agreement. So what do you intend to do next? Have a poo, said Johnny. And after that? A wipe? All is lost, said Mr. Giggles. We have descended to toilet humor. All is surely lost. Johnny Hooker didn't do the washing up. He did have a poo, and he did wipe afterwards. He did not remove the elastoplasts from his face, and having no alternative clothes available, he remained in his borrowed park ranger uniform, which was growing a tad whiffy, as was Johnny, as neither had been laundered for a while. Johnny left the hut before the arrival of park ranger Connor. He exited the park as he had entered it, furatively. It was a beautiful morning. Those birdies chit-chatted, the air smelled of flowers, a milk float rattled on by. Normality was there to be found, all around and about. Johnny wondered whether, just perhaps, he should go and speak to his mum. He concluded that no, he should not. I will return to her in triumph, he told himself. In triumph or not at all. Johnny passed the middleman. It occurred to him that he was supposed to be playing there this very evening with his band Dry Rot. But then Paul, the bass guitarist, must think that he was now dead, so he probably wouldn't be playing there although he could, of course, phone Paul or call round to his house to tell him the joyous news. Things did seem to be getting very complicated. Enough, in fact, as been said, to drive a fellow mad. Johnny resolved that he would call Paul, so he popped into the nearest phone box to do so. Johnny remembered now that he had no small change for the phone, so he would call in on Paul instead. Johnny remembered now that Paul favored a really large fry-up to begin his day. Johnny concluded that he would definitely call in on Paul, at once. And with this conclusion firmly under his cap, so to speak, Johnny set off for Paul's house. When Paul wasn't being a police constable, Paul was being a musician, a rock musician of the metal persuasion, and one dressed in the manner of the goth. At Johnny's knock upon his blackly painted front door, Paul opened up said door, all bleary-eyed, and blinked about at Johnny. And Johnny does spy the nightwear of Paul, and it was the manner of the goth, those black pajamas. Pajamas? said Johnny. I dyed them myself, which isn't gay, I hesitate to add. I was augmenting these otherwise undistinguished pajamas by staining them the hue which is forever night. Now bugger off, you sticking plaster-faced parky nutter. Nicely put, said Johnny. Bugger off, said Paul. No, hang about, said Paul. No, hold on there, said Paul. It's you, Johnny, said Paul. You're supposed to be dead, said Paul. Black indeed as the yawning grave itself the long dark night of the soul, and the bum of the sweeper who chimneys doth sweep, was the interior of Paul's abode. If it stood still and could be painted black, then Paul had painted it so, with two coats. How do you get your black so black? asked Johnny. I put it on hard, explained Paul. In the case of the sitting room, I simply exploded a ten-gallon can of Dolex ever black emulsion with a couple of pounds of Semtex that I found in the evidence locker at the police station. Nice, said Johnny. Very cheerful. Over a fry-up that would have seen Al Jolson proud, Johnny explained the situation. In fact, he told Paul everything. The lot. And he showed him James Crawford's book, and advanced his theories such as they were regarding the possible existence of the heirloom gang. And everything. Really. The lot. He even showed Paul the business with the pocket compass. And when he was done, 
Paul threw back his long black hair and peered at Johnny over a forkload of long black pudding. And do you really believe all this? He asked. And I intend to find out the truth and clear your name and make your mum proud, so you said. So will you help me? Of course not, said Paul. Whatever made you think I would? Johnny Hooker shrugged. Did you photograph the music that was scrawled all over James Crawford's bedroom like I asked you? Paul shook his darkened head. Sorry, he said. I forgot. But you will be playing with the band tonight? If I'm still alive, I'd love to, said Johnny. I'll inform the rest of the lads. Do you think they can be trusted? It's a possibility. What are you going to do now? Johnny Hooker gave his nose a tap. Play it by ear, he suggested. Thanks for nothing, said Johnny. Well, do try not to get in any trouble. Johnny Hooker said he'd try. And indeed he would. But, unknown to him, as indeed it was unknown to almost anyone other than those directly concerned, great events were unfolding. Great events in which Johnny Hooker would become involved. Great events and terrible, these events. Terrible indeed. Indeed.